0: Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to this place and for your word and the testimony of uh, all the saints that have gone before us, but especially uh, that of Paul. And we pray uh, that that which is said of him uh, might be said of us, that we have turned the world upside down for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, so it's been a long time since I've been with you, and we've been in Acts, and you know, as. I'm want to do, we're getting toward the end of Acts and so I feel like we need to barrel through it, Uh, but I hope we can spend a little bit of time in Acts 24 uh, this morning. Uh, If you remember where we left it off was that uh, Paul had preached a sermon that landed him in hot water uh, because he brought in a wedge issue and that issue was uh, the resurrection of the dead. Uh, The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, the Sadducees didn't. And so instead of turning on Paul, they turned on one another. And that caused a significant problem. And so they hauled him before the Sanhedrin. There was a plot to kill him. Uh, And finally, because he is a Roman citizen, uh, he wants to meet uh, with the governor, whose name is Felix. And so uh, here we are uh, heading uh, to Caesarea, chapter 24, verse 1. And after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman. Uh, That actually could be uh, translated as lawyer. Uh, One Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in the kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots amongst all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him what everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way capital W, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring my alms to my nation and to present offerings. Remember, he collected from the Gentile church, an offering to help uh, relieve the church in Jerusalem. Uh, While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Some Jews from Asia, that's Turkey, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. The word of the Lord. (laughs) Actually, the really good stuff happens in the next couple of verses, uh, but we're going to stay here because there's a lot of good stuff going on. So what Paul has done is he's entered himself into a legal proceeding that is ultimately going to lead him uh, to Rome. And every you know, Paul has just gone from persecution to persecution to persecution. That is the story of uh, his life. And uh, he can echo John Bunyan when he said, "Well, you can release me from prison today, but I'll be preaching the gospel tomorrow." And uh, and so uh, Paul, even when he was released, uh, he found himself in hot water. Why? Because the gospel divides. Now, one of the things that Uh, Paul does that really would get people stirred up is not just the gospel but really the implications of the gospel Um, what implications does the gospel have uh, for the people in Jerusalem what implications does it have for the city in Corinth Uh, what implications does it have for the people who heard him on Mars Hill in Athens uh, really significant implications, and sometimes those implications are spelled out like uh, in Ephesus. Remember, there's a huge riot. Why? People started becoming Christians, and it put a huge dent in the silver trade. Not just jewelry, but little statues that people uh, would buy of Artemis in order to worship him. And uh, they put them up in their house in the same way that you or I might put up a cross or uh, a nativity set and so they became Christians and they said we want none of it and then he comes into Jerusalem where Christianity already had begun to make some headway so much so that uh, Tertullus the lawyer knows about it uh, and has some evidence uh, not just from Jerusalem uh, but all over the empire uh, Paul is stirring up trouble and actually that part where it says um, um, that bit about uh, where is it? uh, Stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world uh, that actually can be uh, inter- interpreted as turning the world on its ear. The wor- this man turns the world upside down. But what a great accusation. I, I mean, can you imagine that, that somebody would say that not just about us individually, but even the Advents? Like, oh, I've heard of the Advents. Y'all are trouble. You've turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. If you could just stay on the corner of Fifth Ave- I mean 6th Avenue and 20th Street, everything would be great. Uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it. Uh, The surest way uh, to make sure the world doesn't get turned on its ear, that the world doesn't get turned upside down for the gospel, is that people don't go. Is that people don't go. And uh, we read that blessed are the feet of those who bring uh, good news. Uh, And the life of a Christian, not even an evangelist, uh, the life of a Christian is really, really hard. Paul was a single man. He didn't take money from anyone. He insisted on making tents and working in leather goods wherever he went uh, in order that he would beholden to no man uh, and go so far as to say look I, I want to make sure my conscience is clear both to man and to God and by that he means not one I'm not beholden to anybody I'm beholden to God uh, but two uh, if you aren't stirred up a little bit then I'm not doing my job now what we're going to find out based on Felix's reaction is that Paul is preaching here one of the most appropriate sermons that he could possibly preach He found the bruise and he decided to press in on it. Now, I'll I'll get to the behind the scenes story because Luke doesn't lay it out for us, but suffice it to say now, I'll give you a little sneak peek. Um, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, and somebody should have talked to her parents. Uh, (laughs) Felix and his wife, Drusilla, aren't really husband and wife. Uh, She's actually married to somebody else, uh, but because he's the governor, he can kind of do what he wants. And Paul alludes to this in sort of a sideways way that gets Felix so upset, but so convicted that he, "I will deal with you on another occasion." And then off he goes. Uh, and you know, sermons like that—you know, how many of us have listened to a sermon and it hits us right between the eyes, and our initial reaction is, "I hate that preacher." <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, you actually think that he knows some, somehow somebody told him about you and so you feel like all of a sudden the sense of betrayal that, that someone ratted you out and now he's using you in a sermon. And But then eventually the anger sort of subsides when you realize there's no way that he could have known about that. And so maybe it is God and maybe I, I this is a word for me and maybe I need uh, to, to wrestle with it. And so... Um, I I laugh sometimes when people come up and they blame me for things. I say, well, maybe you should blame God, uh, because I, I mean, I really, I wish I knew what was going on a little bit more in your life. But maybe that it's God who's speaking, and Paul has that ability to be able to preach in a way that, in fact, quite frankly, is winsome, because even though they tried to kill him, people really like hearing what Paul has uh, to say. He's not the most articulate guy. Uh, But here's this guy who is uh, preaching with this supernatural power and people's lives are being changed in such a way that the world gets turned upside down. Now, Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship in order to get a different track. Uh, I think also, too, uh, he does want to go to to Rome and evangelize Rome. uh, And he realized, if I can go as a prisoner of the emperor, he'll pay my way. Right? I don't have to pay my own way so I can go and, uh, and they'll treat me well because I'm a Roman citizen to an extent but actually here Paul is in chains before Felix uh, the governor uh, but this accusation and Tertullus is very smart uh, turning the world on its ear what is the Roman Empire's greatest fear? No peace. right maintaining peace maintaining the empire the Pax uh, Romana and in what they, the way that they did this is, for the most part, wherever they conquered, they allowed people to maintain their everyday traditions, their religious convictions, things like that, so long as it didn't interfere with the peace of the empire. And so, for instance, the Jews were allowed uh, to worship. And here's something that's very interesting when you think about why Jesus came when he did. He was born in a very narrow window of time where, one, the Jewish authorities could not kill him on their own. And if they could, how would he have died? Stoning. They would have stoned him to death. And yet the Jews could bring, because they had the Sanhedrin, they had the high priest, they could bring an accusation and bring it to the governor in Jerusalem. And based on that, the Roman authority could decide to execute the person. And so this very narrow window of time meant that if Jesus was found guilty, he would have to be executed by the Roman authorities who would crucify him. Because it actually wouldn't be that long after Jesus... Where the Jews lose any ability, any authority whatsoever, to do much of anything. And so, if you mess with Rome and your religiosity gets in the way, what do they do? They destroy your temple, right? So Titus came in. They said it was an accident, but you know, it's I, I have lots of accidents. Oops. Uh, and uh, and you know, there we were just hanging out, and all of a sudden the 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 temple was reduced to rubble. Sorry. Uh, so they, uh, they totally destroyed the temple at the center of Jewish life and said, now uh, you're beyond double secret probation. Uh, Your hours you're and anything short of conformity uh, will result in death. And so after that, after you know, Titus sent his army out and that's when you have a real significant crackdown, you have the situation down at Masada, if you've ever been down there, well worth looking up. It's an amazing story. Uh, there was a Peter O'Toole movie uh, about it as well. And you can go visit it. It's up on the mountain. and You can still see where the Roman Romans were camped out there down at the bottom trying to get up to it. Uh, but all that to say, uh, Tertullus uh, knows what he's talking about and that was what people who were antagonistic to the Christian faith were trying to do to the Christians early on. They were trying to pin on them a charge of treason a charge of disorderliness that in fact not only are they causing problems all over the world but they're actually against the emperor himself so some of the early charges that were bought, brought uh, against Christians were they're cannibals they eat people now why would why would they think that communion right uh, so they were kind of well we're not cannibals but you can understand why they would think that and and flip out and then at one point in time roman had it roman had enough with trade unions you know it's nothing new under the sun and they'd had enough of trade unions so you would have they actually would shut down uh, by force like the barbers association you know they, they would make sure the barbers couldn't gather with one another and talk and people who were against Christianity tried really hard to lump the Christians in with the trade unions. And so they were against them uh, in uh, in that way. Uh, and then uh, they uh, would say that Christianity is just way too different. Way too different. Because at least as a Roman, uh, you know, if you're the Roman governor, uh, you can look up and there on top of the hill and uh, called Zion is, uh, is a building with... Uh, pretty columns, and and what do they call it? A temple, right? And what happens at the temple? People pray, people sacrifice animals. In fact, to look at some of the things that went on at the temple, if you didn't know any better and you were from Greece or from Rome, uh, you might easily mistake what was going on for something that you see uh, in uh, your own uh, temple worship uh, back in the suburbs of Athens. And so, uh, Christianity comes around, and they start to talk to the Christians, and they say, so tell me about, uh, about this Christianity. Where, uh, where do you worship? Well, anywhere. Well, where's your temple? Well, I'm actually the temple that, that God inhabits by the power of, of His Holy Spirit. No temple. Well, where do you, where do you have sacrifices? Uh, well there's a once and for all sacrifice that was made on our behalf outside of Jerusalem uh, on a hill called Calvary and it was there that uh, Jesus himself died for us and so there's no more need for sacrifices no more need for sacrifices well then what do the priests do all the time? Well, we have no priests. In fact, all of us are priests. That we stand as mediators between men and God by mediating the gospel to people so that they too can become in, come into relationship with God the Father and they themselves join this kingdom of priests. So priests in the way you're talking about it, we don't have those. And you know what they called Christians? Atheists. That was actually one of the early claims against Christianity. They're all a bunch of atheists. No temple, no sacrifice, uh, no priest. And so, surely, this is a threat to our cultural system as we know it. And yet, what they found is that this word, this gospel, uh, had the power... Uh, to change people's lives and so yes the world was turned on its ear and it's a dangerous thing to be a Christian uh, not just for Paul uh, but for all of us uh, you know I, I've been struggling recently with this whole issue of calling uh, because I hear people say I'm called to this or I'm called to that and um and I know that there's a process of discernment. Uh, but I remember when I was being ordained, they wanted me to articulate a call to ministry. I couldn't. I didn't really understand what that meant. And I would hear people say, well, I've got this sensation and I've got this feeling. And I could say that, like I really want uh, to be a preacher. Uh, I really want uh, to uh, be uh, what the New Testament uh, shows is the job of an ordained uh, person. And, and it felt very selfish of me to say something like, well, I want to do that. Uh, and for some reason, we, we siphon off clergy as some kind of other category, like they get called, but everyone else just does what they want within their uh, abilities. Uh, and I realized, actually, uh, I was right. <laughs> uh, in the sense that you know the Bible actually never, ever talks Uh, about that call being distinct from any other call and even when it talks about the office of bishop what does it say it says he who desires to be an overseer desires a good thing which means what in the early church there were men putting themselves forward and saying hey I'd like to do that and if there was any sense of call do you know how they decided who would lead the church they cast lots they put names in the fishbowl and plucked them out And let God decide based on that uh, who would, like for instance, who would take uh, Judas' place. And so uh, I was reminded uh, last week that uh, when we're thinking about our own vocations, that all of us have the same vocation. And that is we are Christians. That is God's call on our lives. That is our ultimate identity. That's who we are. Right. So that, and that, since we're no different from Paul, we're no different from one another. Uh, that we're Christians, and we're meant uh, to uh, believe on Him, and we're also meant uh, to share the gospel uh, in word and deed uh, to those that we encounter, and very much so to the ends uh, of uh, the earth. Now, we all have different occupations, for the most part, you know, we can talk about uh, occupations. And, uh, and a lot of times, you know, someone who's really struggling about what they ought to do, I sometimes just say, well, what do you like to do? You know, I think about the raw hand uh, that has been dealt a number of people in our world. Uh, I remember there was a guy in my, uh, I went to high school with, and all he wanted to do was to go to the VoTech school and work on cars his entire life. That's how he spent his spare time. He absolutely loved taking things apart and putting them back together. It just really thrilled him. Well, his parents said, eh, can't do that. And so what they said, well, I'll tell you what you can do is uh, go to college and get a degree and then we can talk about it. And uh, and so this person uh, went to college uh, and was an English major and uh, and, and graduated. And, uh, and in fact, you know, his parents said, well, you know, we'd love for you to th- consider graduate school. And he went away and he got a, a master's Uh, in English lit, and uh, and now uh, he is uh, putting all that to use uh, at the garage that he now owns, uh, working (laughs) on cars. Uh, Because he just realized, you know, these ideas of what we think is the right pattern moving forward, rather than actually stopping and saying, you know, uh, as Mataran once said, uh, community exists for the rescue of persons. Right? Our job is to help people live into their callings in life and not to judge them. That doesn't mean you don't steer them and there's not discernment and, and you, you talk about it. Uh, because, quite frankly, I mean, there are some people out there who will say things like, God has called me to brain surgery <laughs> and should not be anywhere near. Uh, uh, and there are people who, are even very qualified doctors, one of which actually goes to church here and he was one of my college roommates. And, uh, and if I ever come to and wake up and see him above my bed I'm just gonna say let me die, Get let me die. All right, I, I know what he was like in college He's probably here today. Uh, just let me die uh, but uh, surely uh, surely you know understand that we can serve God in whatever the context is that we're serving but let me piggyback on my vote tech friend uh, the number of people who have been called into full-time gospel ministry, and by that I mean pulpit ministry, missionary work, youth ministry, you know, to work in the life of, of the church uh, under that structure. Uh, the number of people that I have um, encountered uh, whose family dissuaded them from going and the great regret that they have experienced in their life. I even heard a story last week of a young woman uh, who felt called to go to Afghanistan, and this is before this is before uh, 9/11, and uh, she felt called to go to Afghanistan. And her father uh, was a vestry member and a very uh, committed uh, member of the church that she was at, and uh, and she articulated to her dad. He said, "I want to talk to you about this," and rightfully so. The dad was very concerned uh, about her safety and well-being. And she finally looked at him and she said, Dad, if I don't go, who will? I mean, she really looked uh, at, at Afghanistan and just had compassion and mercy and, 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 and realized that uh, she had to go. And you know what he said to her? You can do better than that. You're better than that. You need to find something else to do and she was really devastated by it and didn't go now uh, I, I don't know whatever happened or someone relayed that story to me uh, but I have had people uh, that I've encountered along the way young men uh, in college who want to enter pulpit ministry and who have been dissuaded by their families telling them you know financially you've grown accustomed to a certain way of living and it's too much of a sacrifice for you to go into the clergy rites and so as a result few people go people heed that call and uh, I'll never forget uh, this is one of those stories that I tell and, I, and it, I realize it makes me sound ridiculous like this one time Lauren said I, I woke up one morning and didn't feel very well after a really great meal And she said are you okay and I said oh too much foie gras and she said you know you can't say that in public right that makes <laughs> sound ridiculous. so um, but I, I, I was I was in high school, and, and I knew that this is what I wanted to do in high school. And uh, my parents were sweet and kind enough to take my brothers and I out to Hawaii. And I was playing golf out there, and it was with a guy and his wife, and they were from Asheville, North Carolina. And do you know what they did for a living? They judged beauty pageants. And so I thought maybe God is changing my calling. Maybe I. <laughs> maybe I. And I remember his name was his name was Tuck Green, and. And I had never spoken to him since. I just remember. And we are just talking about it. He was really asking me a lot of questions. He said, you know, you're going to go off to college and you're going to you know all this and this is what you're going to do. And I said, well, that's, that's the plan. And uh, and finally we, we uh, made it to the back nine and he just looked at me and he started crying. And he said, you know, as a young man, I felt like I should go into pulpit ministry and there's not a day that goes by where I don't regret and know that that's what I should have done. And I said, well, it's never too late. Uh, It's never too late. And and don't uh, think that God hasn't used you in In your beauty pageant ministry. Uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) We're talking about the anti-gospel. I'm here to judge you. Uh, Wrong swimsuit. Your talent is terrible. Uh, uh, (laughs) But... He was just to, he was completely distraught because he felt like he had missed out on what God wanted him to do in his life. And so I think for all of us, whether you're uh, called to pulpit ministry or full-time ministry or not, we are actually all in full-time ministry. And we ought to experience the burn. You know, for, for clergy, I do ask them, and you know, I hope to hear, uh, the burning in the bones. You know, that, that there's a fire and they just can't can't keep it out and I met with a guy once for over 12 hours over a series of meetings and and I asked him why he thought he wanted to enter in to be ordained and be in pulpit ministry and be a pastor and over 12 hours he never once said I'm looking forward to preaching never ever once said anything about uh, articulating the gospel uh, did talk a lot about all the kind of um, what he saw as, as perks, and I and I finally just saw him, and said, you know, you're going to be miserable in the pastorate. You are going to hate it uh, because what you think it is, you know, people. I know people who get ordained because they think that it gives them instant credibility and respect. So this is a brave new world. You can forget that. Um, you know, it's very funny. I had a conversation with Mike Hill when he was here, and he said this the last time he was here. He said, you know. He said, the only time I really wear my collar is when I come to the Advent. And he said, because in England, no one's coming up to you and, and saying, hey, I'd like to talk to you about something. If anything, they look at you and they cross the street. Uh, they avoid you. They don't, they don't want to be in, engaged in that kind of thing. And uh, you know, it's, uh, I heard another story last week that was really great about D.L. Moody and uh, Dwight Moody was known uh, for just uh, really having a heart uh, for everybody and he um, uh, would uh, go out of his way to make you feel loved and wanted and no matter who you were and he was out walking in Chicago one day and he was walking through a park and he found this guy laid out on a park bench and um, you know, hung over, had been out on a heavy night of drinking and was just there and, and Moody just sat down uh, at this guy's feet and sat there and the guy kind of opened up one of his eyes and, and Moody said good morning and the guy said good morning and, uh, and Moody asked him he said uh, he said sir do you do you know the Lord Jesus and just how much he loves you and that he can save you not just your soul but can save you from your present life now the man looked, sat up and looked at him and said that is none of your business who do you think you are and he said, well, I'm Dwight Moody. And the man looked back and said, well, it is your business. Uh, and uh, Because that was the business that Moody was in uh, as a preacher. But that's all of us uh, have this vocation uh, to share uh, the gospel uh, with our friends and our family uh, and uh, our neighbors. And uh, the moment that the church loses its passion, even in the midst of accusation uh, for that, uh, we're sunk because it means we're going to be stuck on the corner of 20th and uh, 5th streets. And lots of people are going to say things about you as they did with Paul uh, which are untrue. But what I found in my life is I used to get very defensive when people would accuse me of things and I don't get defensive anymore because I realize that God is my advocate. Right? I have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. And so, and I trust that God is going to work Those situations out, and I know that in the end, truth will win out. I'm reading uh, Hopkins' biography on Charles Simeon, which is well worth a read. And uh, one of the things that they, Simeon early on in his ministry, was so demonized because he was preaching the gospel uh, that uh, first the wardens locked the church, and then when they finally got it to open, The people who held the pews, you know, they paid rents for the pews, they locked the pews against Simeon so people couldn't sit there, and they themselves left. And so Simeon would preach to people just up in the gallery and people who would sit in the aisles. And then there used to be an afternoon service, but the church hired another minister to do that service. And so Simeon was kept from preaching that one uh, service. And this went on for over seven years. I mean, any other guy would have said, I'm knocking the dust off my sandals and I'm out of here. Uh, but Simeon really had uh, a heart for those people. And to think what might have happened if Simeon left. I mean, it, quite frankly, there's a good chance that some of us wouldn't be here right now. Uh, that we don't realize that God actually used Charles Simeon to minister to us, not just in his testimony. Uh, but some of the things that Simeon did he started the Church Mission Society uh, which was the single greatest mission sending agency in the Anglican Communion so you go to places like Rwanda and Uganda and Nigeria well basically anywhere around the world you see that it's the province of Southeast Asia the province of Australia, the province of the Southern Cone which is South America any Asian province do you know who evangelized them? the Church Mission Society They were called Simeonites. uh, And they went out. And they they were, you know, a lot of them suffered uh, death uh, as a result of that ministry. uh, But ultimately, Simeon knew that even in the midst of accusations, uh, most of them false, uh, that God wins out in the end. And so you see even here that Paul is using this trial as a platform for the gospel. He's really not trying to justify himself, he's trying to create a platform. To preach. Because he knows not to trust in horses and chariots. Because he's going to go to Rome, and what's going to happen to him in Rome? He's going to die. He's going to die. And yet, he's taking advantage of every single minute. So right now, he knows he's a dead man walking. But instead of throwing the towel in, instead of trying to just him, justify himself, he's going for it. He is going for it. And preaching a word that the world desperately needs to hear and is capable of turning it upside down. Questions, comments, concerns? So, are you saying it's not too late for me to get into the beauty pageant? <laughs> I, I, you know, I'd say that ship has sailed, David, <laughs> but I'm not sure it ever was in port for you. <laughs> Jay Menendez uh, Andrew there's so many people in this room and we we're in all sorts of different spheres in our lives mm-hmm. and we touch all sorts of different people and this may be a question you don't have time to really answer but could you give us just how do we begin sharing uh, yeah. uh, the good news with the people that we work with the people that we run into Yeah, so there are some very practical things, like step one, don't wear a collar. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, quite frankly, if you do, people are just going to lie to you. You know, it's amazing when, you know, I I show up at something, especially if I'm coming from something that requires me to wear this, and then I go into the cocktail party. People get real spiritual real fast. (laughs) And and, and they want to talk to me about, you know, how they grew up at thus and such a church. And and it's very funny. (laughs) It's, you know... I know this happens a lot, but uh, but they find out that I'm uh, an Episcopal minister. And so they just assume I know every other Episcopal minister on the face of the earth. Like, do you know so-and-so? And no, I don't. Uh, but uh, I think uh, the first thing, and we've talked about this before, but we can never talk about it enough, really is that it has to be rooted in in relationship and care and concern. I do think that there's a ministry for the people like Dwight Moody, uh, who back in the day, uh, in the late 1800s, was able to go up and and minister to people in the way that he did that man on the park bench. Spurgeon had that ability, Uh, Simeon had that ability, and really uh, never took no uh, for an answer. But when someone knows that you really do care about them, and you've not, been re- you've not reduced them to a spiritual statistic that simply says, we just need to get your card stamped so that you can go to heaven, but I actually care about you in the same way the Lord Jesus cares about you. He not only cares about uh, having a relationship with you uh, after you die, but he's also wanting to have a relationship with you right now, and so is concerned with what you're concerned with right now. Uh, so, and I, I used to think that that was the easiest part, but we're living in a world where relationships are an endangered species, especially amongst men. We just we don't have them. Uh, recently, I read about a Harvard professor who does this experiment every year in his class. It's not very scientific, but it it says something. Uh, he has the whole class watch this and he takes two chairs and puts them in front of the whole class facing one another, has two people sit down and then says, okay, I'm going to time you and for the next five minutes have a conversation. They can't do it. You know, He has to coach them along the way and say things, well, you might ask about their family. And they'd often look to him saying, well, w- well, I'm going to talk to. you?" And then he takes the same two people, he turns their chairs back to back gives them their phones and says, now text with one another. And it's like Western Union. (laughs) I mean, they're they're, uh, they're just flying. They can do that. And so I think the world desperately wants relationships, but we're entering into an area, and this is where if you have kids, this is really important. Younger people who are growing up with cell phones are having a hard time talking to people. And adolescence is a hard enough time to try to communicate what's going on in their life uh, but it's even harder now. So, And I think that that's spilled into uh, our own lives. Uh, and uh, we, and what we say we use vocabulary to, to, to sanctify it in some way. So, for instance, I'll ask people around the office, I'll say things like, hey, did you talk to so-and-so? Yeah, I talked to him. I sent him an email or I sent them a text. So you didn't talk to them. (laughs) You sent them a written communication, uh, which is fine, but it's not talking. But see, already, psychologically, we've drawn that is talking for us. So so we're all going to hell, so that's one thing. (laughs) But rooted in relationship, having the ability to actually communicate and care for people in a way that some of these great saints, especially Simeon, showed... Simeon would open up his home. He would go into people's homes. He would go where people didn't want uh, to go. And uh, and I think that for us to engage those who are closest to us, one sometimes a prophet's not honored in their hometown, and so you might be the worst evangelist uh, to be talking to your loved ones. Uh, but I think an easy way to open up the question, uh, open up the conversation, is just to say, hey cousin, son, daughter, mom, dad, you know, kind of grew up in the church, maybe you didn't, but either way, just say, hey, I'd love to hear what your spiritual beliefs are. And you ask that question, and you just be ready. I mean, if you ask, them, if you go right to the juggler, and you say, uh, you know, turn or burn, or, uh, or you know, uh, uh, whatever it might be, uh, or even if you ask them, what do you think of Christianity, Or or, you know that's when you have the organized religion conversation, Uh, but but you ask them what are your spiritual beliefs, and you listen to them. Right, we're having a hard enough time talking to people; it's almost impossible to listen and actually listening to them and not do what all of us do and start formulating in your mind what you're going to say next in response. But that you would actually because when you're doing that, what are you not doing? Listening. And so, actually, trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to be in, in the midst of that, and in the clearest way possible, articulate what the gospel is. Now, it may be that you do have to push on the bruise like Paul's doing here, that you won't know that you need a Savior until you understand your own sinful nature. Uh, and so, you know, it's like saying to someone, hey, we're going to go ahead and start your chemotherapy and radiation. We're going to do a little bit of. Why? Why would I need all... Well, you have cancer. Oh, I get it now. Yes, let's move forward with that. So you first need to understand the need for a Savior, and then you can put Jesus out. Um, I I think that it would be wise for us uh, to spend less time in how-to books uh, and more time in God's Word. Uh, Just being able to... One of the things that I think is remarkable, I mentioned Wesley this morning, you read his journals, and he speaks in Scripture. All, he's not citing it, you know how. Well, you know John three sixteen or whatever it is, but he actually says to the person, "Well, I don't feel, you know, I just feel like God's presence in my life uh, is like a mean judge lurking over me, waiting for me to do something wrong." Like, well, you know that God didn't son, send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world would be saved through Him. Uh, and so, being able to do that, because again, that means you're not using your words; you're using God's words. So good question, and I'd love to. If if you ever want to come by the office, I would make all the time in the world to actually sit down and, and and talk about how you do this. You know, you can come and say, I've got a spouse or I've got a friend or whatever, and this is kind of their hang up, and I'm trying real hard. How can I minister to them? That believe it or not, that's what I'm here for. Uh, and uh, and so I'd love to do that. You'd be most welcome. Go in peace to love and serve. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. <laughs>